Uh, well, my name is Jack, and uh, I don't normally uh, have the pleasure of standing here. Um, it's, it's a lot of work, actually, for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm normally over here, as Siggy was alluding to, uh, and, uh, and so, but it is a joy um, to get to bring the text this morning. And so um, I want to open with a few questions, um, and just, just bear with me for a minute. Do we long for time with the Lord in our mornings? Do we sit with him eager, full of anticipation? Do we find it hard to pull away when, when our time with the Lord is coming to an end? Do, do we try to cancel things so that we can actually spend more time with the Lord? These are the types of questions David Platt was asking when he began his sermon. And uh, I was convicted, personally. I looked at my life and, and discovered my mornings with Jesus were, were fairly short. Uh, they were worrisome and, and filled with anxiety of the day to come at, at, at its worst. I would take, um, I would awake with these thoughts regarding all the conversations that I needed to have, tasks that needed to be done, and, and people that I, I you know, wanted to impress or appease. <laughs> um, and I, I believed and still am believing that the, the lie that God's love isn't enough for me. So as I unpack this passage today, please know that I am speaking to you as one who is also learning myself. I'm struggling to believe more and more who this Jesus is, that his love is sufficient for me. And uh, my prayer is that this passage, as much as it has been helpful in shaping my life and cultivating a heart that loves Jesus more and more this past couple weeks, my hope is that that will do the same for you this morning. That this text as we dive in won't be simply another text in the book of Luke, but rather it would shape and renew our heart. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we've been in this book of Luke and we've got, you know, five moving parts and we're in our third piece of Luke uh, right now. And uh, the, the, the journey of the king is the title. The, the, the phrase that we saw the movement transition was that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And the phrase we'll see kind of repeated throughout the next couple um, chapters is as they made their way or as he made his way, indicating there's a continual movement of Jesus towards Jerusalem where he will stand uh, in front of uh, a court uh, and, and be judged and accused. Uh, and then be put to death. So we enter into this continual journey. Luke 11, 1 through 13, if you will, open your Bibles, turn there with me. Last week, Jesus spoke admirably to Mary, who was eager to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. This was in contrast to Martha, who was distracted with much serving, right? A, a faithful heart that takes time to rest. And, and now we turn this page and we see another posture. A posture from last week, uh, you know, this faithful heart that takes time to rest. And now we ask, uh, so we get to know the loving Father. And that's, that's my big aim this morning. Right? These disciples, they, they see Jesus praying. They, they understand that this is something that he does a lot. And so then they go, man, we want to we know what it's like to pray like Jesus. And so Jesus then tells us, we ask. We ask so that we get to know this loving Father. 
Soren Kierkegaard uh, said this, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays, i.e. the pr- <laughs> prayer isn't for God, <laughs> it, it's for me. We ask so that we get to know the loving Father. So let's read. Verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he, uh, when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we, also, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And when he had said them, uh, and then he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish instead of a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if, ask, uh, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Oh, most merciful, loving Father. One who delights in using broken people like me to showcase your kingdom of love. God, show us more of your heart, both, both for prayer, but in how we ought to see you. God, remove, remove this filthy lens that, that we often see things through and, and pu- with pure eyes. Help us to see you fully for who you are. Amen. So let's contextualize this conversation just a little bit. Back when we learned about discipleship, we learned about the desire for a disciple to model their entire life around their, their rabbi, their teacher. Uh, it's a cultural desire to be so much like their teacher that their disciple would begin to mimic them, right? That they would begin to walk and talk and, and even begin to, to, to kind of say and repeat certain phrases, pray like their teacher. If you guys are unaware, uh, these aren't just Jack's ideas. Like, these are, you know, like, a bunch of way smarter people than me have, like, figured this out, and I just get to compile the data for you and hopefully deliver it in a packageable, easy-to-digest way. <laughs> so as I'm saying this stuff, if you, if you ever have a question about a concept, I'm happy to have a conversation with you afterwards, um, or even, uh, yeah, if you would like to have any content thrown your way, I'm more than happy to do that. So this process was normal, right? To follow the way of their teacher by, by learning how to pray like Jesus, right? But it, it's curious, the disciples, right? So normally the teacher is teaching the disciples how to pray. But in this recording, the disciples 
are the ones that asked Jesus how to pray. Up until this point, Jesus hadn't taught them how to pray. John taught the the disciples how to pray, right? They, They say that in the passage. Every rabbi seems to include it into their curriculum, yet Jesus had not gotten there with his disciples. And we can read into the text and come up with various reasons why this might be the case. But one thing I think is really evident is that Jesus modeled prayer more often than he taught about it. And this is in contrary to every other rabbi that we know, right? They would pray on the street corners, and, 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 and we, from what we read, like they are just making it known that they are the, the Pharisees are the guys in the house, right? They rule. They know, it's, they know what it's about God, and they clearly don't see Jesus in this way. Uh, we see Jesus— He laces prayer throughout his ministry, and it's significant. It's a fundamental part, a core piece of it. And no doubt, there's there's just so much differences that overlay. So when when the disciples see Jesus praying and and finding solitude, they wake up and he's gone because he's away with his father. There's got to be a bell ringing. Jesus, teach us to pray like the disciples. And as a response to the question, Jesus has three movements for us recorded in Luke. He gives us a template for how to approach the Father, right? This, this prayer that's, it's not pray these lines exactly, though I think there's probably some goodness in that, but it's a template. And then he gives us two postures in which we ought to hold. So the hungry, eager disciples, they ask Jesus how to pray, and Jesus responds, Father, hallowed be your name. This is actually very important culturally. Um, David Platt, in that sermon that I was talking about, he, he was preaching on this text, and he mentioned this. Across 39 books of the Old Testament, Father, as a title, was only used 15 times. And none of those usages are references to praying to God. We don't see that picture at all in the Old Testament. Turn the page to the New Testament, you have a whole new picture. We turn the page to Matthew, and from Matthew to John, you see God referred to as Father 165 different times. How's that for paradigm breaking? Any follower of the age might see God as like Almighty, right? One to be feared, Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh, all speaking to the different characteristics of who God is, but very little reference to Father or, or Abba, Dad. And I'm aware that some of us in the room. Uh, may struggle with the idea of, of a loving father. And, and we understand, right, our earthly fathers, unfortunately, are just as human as we are. And by that standard, then, are also in need of a loving father just as much as we are. And so what joy. We get to be his kiddos. We get to be God's kiddos grafted into the vine, having full access to this grace and righteousness because of the work of Jesus. So continuing on, right? So he says, Father, and then he says this, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. When uh, David and I, uh, our lead pastor, talked through this passage, he kind of mentioned this. It's almost like it's an ask in and of itself. Not that the Father needs us to tell him that he's holy. He's got, Isaiah 6 is clear, he's got heavenly beings and and these massive creatures roaming the throne constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He doesn't need us to say, hallowed be your name. So why does Jesus include this? I, I think it's because we need to be reminded of his holiness. 
we're asking the Father to remind us of his holiness, his kingdom, the, the kingdom that we are presently a part of and citizens of, both here and the now and the, and the future coming reign. But we forget it all the time. We get fixated on the physical things and people that want to steal this, this, uh, this worship, this holiness that we ascribe to God. It should, should be described to God always, and yet we sometimes find ourselves ascribing it in different areas of our life, different idols. A friend of mine, a pastor from Iowa City, he once began a series in Ecclesiastes, and he said, the Bible tells us this, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. But many of us do not live today with an eternal perspective. Instead, our eternity amnesia has led us to living with a packet-all-in mentality that puts all of the pressure of paradise on the very moment that we're living in. We want to wipe away the myths about the afterlife and preach the truth of the gospel in a way that sets us free to live today for someone bigger than ourselves and larger than this moment. So if, if we are a people that struggle with eternity amnesia and, and this packing all in mentality that ask for a heavenly father to be rightly hallowed, it makes complete sense. It's a, it's a prescription for our sin nature, um, a north pole in which we can calibrate our, our compass. And it's completely different from asking my kingdom to come, which is often what I ask for, unfortunately, right? Like unintentionally, when my wife tells me to go to the grocery store to pick up milk, and I come home with Oreos, whose kingdom did I live for in that moment? Probably not hers, probably myself, right? Right? I didn't see her needs, but rather I saw my wants as greater. And this is often the case, I think, for um, our lives. I come to the Father, and I I pray, and I I ask for all the things that I want him to do. I bring my grocery list, and it's almost monotonous. God, would you do this? God, would you do that? Depending on your background, the, the, the phrase, right, prosperity gospel, might ring a bell. Or the, the name it and claim it ministry is this idea, in short, is God wants you to have these things. He wants you to have that new car, the new toy, the new career, etc. And, and if you pay attention to the nuances, those things don't build up his kingdom, they, they build up mine. Now, sometimes the line is a little gray, uh, I think that this is like, you know, is this you know, needed for Jesus to build his kingdom or is this for me to build my kingdom? But I think the way that Jesus starts the prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, is a great way to start off on the right foot. Whose kingdom are we building? Who are we addressing? It's not a genie. It's God, the Father who loves us. The next line, it goes like this, right? So, so we, he says, holy is your name. And then he says, give us each day our daily bread. I remember when I turned 12, my, my, uh, my parents, knowing my love for, for drums and for cake, uh, decided to make a drum kit cake. And uh, <laughs> with the help of some friends, right, this idea became a reality. And, and this is the finished product. It was pretty cool. Like there's a little K-pop up there and stuff, you know. I thought this was really awesome, but um, as I've been thinking about this passage this past week, uh, I have a greater appreciation for the gesture. As humans, 
whenever we celebrate or do something, food is usually a part of it. It's almost essential, right? And, and if the food is a primary thing, i.e., let's go get food together, let's get lunch, let's get dinner, then it's kind of central. My parents gave me this cake um, because the time and the season, it, it called for it. It was a celebration, so why the heck not? And yet, it doesn't have nearly the same amount of weight as it would have back in biblical times. This cake wasn't necessary. (laughs) Food was necessary back then. We had resources and friends that that were all easily accessible, and, and the ingredients were readily available. My mom, when I asked her to send this photo of me in the cake, of course, wanted to know why in the world I needed these. So I told her I'm preaching. Seems like a good sermon illustration. She's a little concerned. (laughs) But as we talked, she drew up this memory of walking through a garden with with her grandpa as a little girl. So this is her grandpa and her as a little girl walking through the garden. And he would say, well, God provided the rain. Look at those berries. Fast forward, my grandpa now age 80-something, farmer of farmers, and he grieves. He says, with every passing decade, we are further away from our food source. Because now, if, if you want a loaf of bread, you just go to the grocery store. You don't have to raise the wheat and mill the, the grain and then, and then you know, mix the flour and bake the cake. You just go to the grocery store. Now, hear me say, I'm not advocating that we boycott grocery stores and all raise our own chickens. But... <laughs> But we got a couple of people that do that, and they love to do that. But the, the necessity of food has lost its meaning. We've lost that feeling of trust in the Lord when a bad hailstorm passes through, and a significant chunk of our winter resources, our food, is depleted. So, what is the principle that we can take away then? When Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. What is the necessity that we need? For me, it was time with Jesus in the morning. Fred mentioned this last week. Um, he's learning to try to find his rest in God every morning. And I remember I used to have certain practices that I once held dearly. And as I confessed, I, I have not picked them up in some time. I only have so much time in my day, and, and many things are eager to take it away from me. We live in this, um, it's called an attention economy um, in the business world. And platforms like YouTube and, and TikTok and TV, they're all programmed to try to steal as much attention away from us as possible. All the while, the serious things like our, our relationships, our, our work, our time with the Lord, they, they begin to suffer. And my prayer this past Wednesday has been, starting this past Wednesday has been, God, give me time with you today then I might sit and fully see him and know him, that I would have time to be with him today. So give us this daily bread. The next part of the prayer, uh, after we ask for provisions, is this, forgive us our sins. What an interesting turn. Jesus, don't you know that you, you made a way so I don't have to ask for forgiveness anymore? <laughs> You made it so that I, I can, for once and for all, right? We've been forgiven, past, present, future. All my sins are covered. I live with this righteousness that is immovable. 
If you love theology, you might throw around the comment, like the great exchange has happened, right? His righteousness, his perfectness in substitution for my shame, my sin. So why is it that God, that Jesus himself includes forgiveness? The Greek word here is aphiomi, which is a really fun word to say. Uh, but it's a really strong word, aphiomi. Uh, it's most, un, uh, most commonly understood as debt forgiveness, um, but there's like other references that also kind of accentuate it, right? To desert completely or to divorce. The simple translation is to send away, but like in the strongest sense possible. Jeff Vanderstelt said this, if we don't understand that there is wrath being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, then there is no good news. The idea of the gospel being God is love and God loves you, which is true, but we don't have any of the God was against you. By nature, Ephesians 2, you were children of wrath, not children of God, born into a state where God is against you. Then, then the idea that God is now for you in Jesus Christ is not good news that warms our heart. In short, we, we need to see our initial state. Our initial state is not one of peace and tranquility with God, but it's actually one of opposition. Jesus affirms this in the text this morning. He even says, if you who are evil, he calls us evil straight up. We being set apart fully, God did not want this though. So the, the custom of being redeemed and, and washed by the blood of, of, of bulls and lambs, it was instituted, but it wasn't sufficient Right? Jesus still had to come, yet we still sin just as regularly as we did before. We need forgiveness just as much as they did. And it's accessible through Jesus Christ, but we still need to ask. We need to regularly go before him and through Jesus Christ and ask the Father for forgiveness, to send strongly away the opposition that is there in the first place. So, we ask for forgiveness, and then Jesus pokes a little hole in our pride, and he says, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. How great do we see our sin? Enough that other people's offenses towards us are, are like nothing? How great do we see his love for us? So much that we would literally do anything in our power to ensure someone else is forgiven. But Jack, you, you have no idea what they did to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God loves you. He loves you. But they are unrepentant. Yes, he loves you. But they think they're right. <laughs> yes. The Father loves us so much. The, who's, who's the most right in the universe? God. And we are in opposition to him. And he sent his son to pay for our debt. I don't know how much I've done against the God. Like, I don't keep a list of all the sins that I've committed. And, and yet, he's still willing to forgive me. Forgiveness is accessible to me now. So we ask for forgiveness. And in this, are we not revealing this loving father and his heart for us? How are we doing? That's a lot. Okay. Let's keep moving. 
We're moving to the last section of this prayer, and, and Jesus has two postures for us. So, so the last part of the prayer is this, lead us not into temptation. This phrase could pose a threat to our, our, uh, some theological positions that we hold dearly in the church. Uh, it's important that we do not squeeze the scriptures into our theology, but rather shape our theology around what scripture says. So, in order to more fully understand this ask, lead us not into temptation, it would help to confirm what Jesus is meaning. On the surface, it would seem that the Lord is leading us. And it would also seem that he is capable of leading us away from temptation. Which could also indicate that he could lead us into temptation. But many wise scholars have said, if you don't know what the text is saying, keep reading, you'll find the answer. And if you still haven't found the answer, keep reading. (laughs) So we keep going forward. The two illustrations that follow after this are speaking to the Father's love, right? That God is eager to give good gifts like a friend and that he's a loving Father who, who treats us like children. He sees us as children. And it would seem contradictory, that a loving God would lead us into temptation. And even James kind of affirms this, right? James 1.13, For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So it is not an indication that he will lead us into evil, but yet the Father does have some sort of control over the situation. He has authority, right? John Crocker a well-loved pastor around here, spent some time uh, at Hillcrest. We, we love him dearly. He wrote a book about the Lord's Prayer. Um, fascinating story. Uh, Crocker spent an entire year praying the Lord's Prayer. Is that right, Fred? I think many years. Many years. Yes. Wow, even better. And from that experience, he uh, wrote this book. And Crocker points out two things. The first is that the word for testing and temptation in the Greek are, are actually the same word, but it's based off the context of the surrounding verses. There's a different meaning. That is to say that temptation is often uh, with the context, with the purpose of destroying, whereas testing is with the purpose to build up in love. I love it a lot when other people do my work for me. It was really nice for John Crocker to do that. So... He's such a good guy. The second point that Crocker, uh, the second thing that Crocker points out is that testing or temptation as a general rule is actually just hard. Whether it's a temptation or a test, it's just hard. We may know it to be a test, and it's still hard. And as his kiddos, it's actually really good to plead to him and ask not to send us into tests or temptations. We know that when we are tempted, it is not from God, and yet God can and will lead us into testing. And then, it makes sense, because then James echoes it. He says, when you experience testing, rejoice. So we kind of have to ask the question, though, if it's truly good for us, what, you have to ask the question, why wouldn't we just beg God for more testing? Come on, bring it on. That's good, right? <laughs> I think it's because when we, yeah, when we pray, right? 
lead us not into temptation, we're kind of doing the same thing that Jesus did. Let this cup not pass, or let this cup pass from me. We recognize it's hard, and we want to give it over to the Father. And even so, he, he may send us through it. But why then? And I think it's because we go back to our, our main point. When we ask, we get to know the loving Father. So, to summarize all of that prayer, we, we ask him to be hallowed for his kingdom to come, not my own. We, we ask for him to provide the things that we need, both big and small. Um, we want him to be known as provider in our lives. We ask him to forgive us our sins. We recognize that we continually need his grace, his mercy in our lives. And we uh, get to ask him to deliver us from hardship, from tests and temptations, but also knowing that when the test comes, the posture is of one who rejoices because it's good for us. We get to be shaped more into the image of Christ. And then, now Jesus gives us these two postures, these two stories. Posture 1, verse 5, it says this, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are, in, are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because of his friend, but yet because of his impudence. He will rise, and he will give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who, who asks receives. The one who seeks, find. And the one who knocks, it'll be opened. Jesus encouraged us to be impudent. Or another word for that is shameless in our prayer. Some translations refer to this as persistence. And um, I'm not entirely sure that's wrong, but I don't think it's as helpful as shameless. I would encourage you to go back into the cultural norms. Later this week, it'll enrich this point. But to boil everything down, Jesus is basically telling us, be raw in your approach to the Father. He's not interested in us being surface level or, or like cliche or, or reserved. He wants you to be vulnerable, open with him. Right? To return to Soren Kierkegaard, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. In our prayer of shameless asking, are we not changing our perspective of who he is? And when, when we are cliche, surface level, we're not really revealing more of who he is in our own life. I think of King David in the Psalms, right? Psalms 22, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. My strength, come quickly, help me. 31, listen closely to me, re- listen closely to me, rescue me. 43, vindicate me, God. My defense, my cause, come to my side. And truly, it's all over the Bible. People pleading, lay- laying their hearts bare before him. And when we plead, he is known more fully to us. And what is it that we're really asking for anyway? And I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. Keep reading. What father among you? How much more will the father give you the Holy Spirit? We are asking for more of God, are we not? 
We're asking for him to show up in our lives to do something incredible for us as something only he really can do. The sad truth is, and it's one we have to address, there are many times, and I'm sure you've all experienced this, where our impudent, our, our shameless prayers, our raw prayers have turned to weeping. Weeping turning to fasting. And in the end, the Lord did not answer the way that we would have hoped. He seemed to be silent. To anyone who's experienced this, I see you. That's truly hard. Know that it is not that you prayed wrongly. It's not that the Father um, chooses other people above you. <laughs> you may be experiencing all sorts of doubts regarding the truths who we believe God to be, right? That he isn't truly loving, that he doesn't actually care, he, he isn't good. <sighs> be encouraged rather than disheartened. For you are not alone in that process. Your prayer is not less significant than others. My encouragement would be to lean into the church. Allow us, the body of Christ, to carry that burden with you. And continue to pray so that you may know this heart of a loving God more fully. And then posture two, sink, let this sink in, right? Because if that is hard, that's where you're at. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So come to him with the shameless posture and then come to him as a child. Jesus returns to this concept of a father who is in heaven, uh, seeing our needs and providing for us. We come to the loving father with a posture of a child. Andrew Murray writes this in his book. He says, and this is really helpful, I think, that the life God bestows is not once for all, but to each moment continuously by unceasing operation of his almighty power. Humility the place of entire dependence on God is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest value or the highest virtue of this creature and the root of every virtue. The first duty and the highest value of us, the creatures, his people, is to see ourselves as entirely dependent on the Father. why our fifth value around here at Hillcrest is not just prayer, but it's, it's desperate. Like a soul wandering in the desert, longing for an oasis, dependent. Like an infant when a, in constant need of the, the mother's care, that kind of prayer is what we value around here. It isn't that we sometimes need prayer, but rather we are constantly and forever in need in prayer. We're in need of his presence always. And prayer is the way that we get to know him. 
we get to know him more fully. We get to know ourselves as dependent upon him. I, I remember as a kid, <laughs> I'd ask my dad for things like, man, can we, can we ride our bikes to the Dairy Queen? Can we play with Legos tonight? Dad, can we shoot off model rockets at the church? (laughs) And then as I grew older, Dad, can you help me with my homework? Dad, can you fix my phone, my, my computer? Dad, my heart is broken. What do I do? Dad, I'm struggling. Help me figure this out. My father is not a perfect man, but I know him. I know what he's capable of. I know his feelings. I know when he's sad or when he's happy. When he's struggling himself with his own stuff, I know him. Our Heavenly Father wants us to know him in this way. I'm going to invite the worship team up as I close our time out with some takeaways. Spend time this week praying. Ask him to be hallowed in your life. Ask him for your daily needs. Ask him to reveal more fully who he is, how he's forgiven us. That it may enlarge your heart so that you may forgive others. Ask him to lead you in a way uh, away from hard things and to help, him, help us trust him more when we go through hard things. And with the two postures, we ask with this impudent, shameless posture and that of a child pleading with their father, Ah, Jesus. That you would reveal yourself more fully as our Redeemer, our Savior, away from the wrath of the Father and into the loving embrace of this Father. And Heavenly Father, reveal to us more fully your love your protection, your provision for us. Your eagerness to know us and to be known by us. We pray these things. Aware, confident that you you hear us and you will answer according to your goodness, your faithfulness. Amen. We want to spend some time in reflection. Um, the worship team, are, they're, they're going to sing a song. Um, it's just the Lord's Prayer written to a melody. And as they do, my, my encouragement would be just to let the, the song wash over you. That you also would be in prayer in this moment, asking the Lord in whichever way you feel led to ask you would ask for more of him 
this morning.